Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com. So head over there for more information. So welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Steve Williams. And with me as usual is Dan and Holly. Guys, say hi. How are you? Hey, Steve. Good. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Um, we've got a fun episode. We're actually going to be talking to one of your coworkers. Mm-hmm. Her name is Carrie. Carrie's and she's yep. She is a respiratory RT therapist, respiratory therapist, paramedic out of uh, our Washington area. Cool, cool. And she's a vent pro. She's a vent master, ventilator expert. Yes. Is there a is there a certification behind that, or is it just I've gone to so no, many day classes and I'm the SME? Yeah. yeah, it's an actual. You know, like if you go to paramedic school, you go to RT school, yeah. nursing school. Yeah. Cool. So she's like. She's, she's, legit. she's legit. legit. She's legit. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, we're going to get her on the phone and I'm going to let you guys kind of lead this one and ask questions and okay. I'll, I'll be here, but you know, I want you guys to, since you guys kind of know her a little bit better, let's talk to her, see what she knows and what we're going to go over and see what we can learn. All right. Sounds, sounds good. good. Cool. Hello. Hi, Carrie. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm well. I'm here with Holly, and I'm here with Steve Williams. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Carrie. How's it going? Doing great. Thanks. So as you know, today we're going to go over mechanical ventilation, uh, just some of the basic stuff, working our way up to some not-so-basic stuff, uh, just trying to get your expertise, because this is one of those things where, I mean, I really didn't know this. When I first started, we had that auto vent. Oh, okay. yeah. That's Set it and forget it. used that before. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and yes. But it was just a tool. I never knew that uh, the ventilator is actually a treatment. And so that's what I want to get out of you today is how we can use that as a tool for treatment. Sounds good. Yeah, right. I think like, like our med bag, we, I kind of view that as my toolbox. Like there's lots of meds in there that do different things. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can just get in the vent toolbox. Like I've I got like the it. patient that's Ooh, presenting yeah. this way. What are the different things that I have in my toolbox to help out? I like it. Perfect. I love it. All right. So let's just start with uh, the different modes of mechanical ventilation and just a brief explanation of what they are. I can start there. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to just jump ahead just before we get into modes is I always, when I teach these sort of classes, I always teach to look at the ET tube first because that's where all of this happens, right? This is where it all begins. So you always need to assess the size of the ET tube and the depth because if you don't have the right size or the right depth of the ET tube, no matter what magic you can do with your ventilator, uh, it may not be enough. So I can't emphasize that enough, um, especially in pediatric patients, is to always make sure you have the right size ET tube at the right depth um, and listen to your patient um, before you start in on the ventilator part. So how do I know my tube's the right size? That is an excellent question. So um, there are uh, different formulas that you can use. Um, I use 16 plus the age divided by four, um, and that is for an uncuffed tube. You can minus a half for a cuffed tube. Um, and there's I think I also went my entire career almost not knowing that that was for a cuffed tube. Yeah, me either. Yeah, right. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, and there's also a formula for ET tube depth, um, which is for five feet and 
taller, which is the height in inches divided by four plus four. And that will give you an average approximation of your depth of ET tube. Because I think we all have learned, oh, uh, adult female patients get a 702 at 21 centimeters and adult males get an 802 at 23 centimeters. But it really depends on how their height, right? Mm-hmm. So the shorter the patient, you're probably not going to have to um, put the tube as deep. And a taller patient, you might have to put it deeper than you would think. So can you repeat that equation there again, the, the height? Oh, height in inches divided by four plus four oh. will give you a good approximation of the depth of the ET tube. All right, so let me think for a second. So 72 inches is six feet. I'm 75. Easy math. What's that? I'm 75. Okay. Oh, so wait, we'll but go 72 s- is easier okay. to divide yeah. by four, right? So 72 divided by four. Okay. Someone 18. who went to college. Okay, 18. Oh, yeah. somebody needs a calculator. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we have a five-star Medicare. Okay. So we're at 18. <laughs> we're, we're covered. Yeah. Plus four is 22? Plus four. Eight. Oh. That's correct. Right. You divide by four and add God. four. That's and amazing. it's 22, right? It's 22. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, Dan, you're... I'm four foot two. Four foot two. (laughs) (laughs) Don't put it very deep. (laughs) 802 for you. (laughs) Right. All right. Okay. That's an excellent way to think about that. Uh, And I think a good rule of thumb still for pediatric patients, since, since that formula is only for five feet and taller, is three times the size of the tube is a good estimate. On five the feet and under. Okay. That, correct. Yeah. So for Dan and anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> the special formula. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. All righty. Moving on. Awesome. I love this. This is like the yeah. RT brain and their right. process. Like how to I go like down the checklist. Okay. So check the tube size, check the depth. Now what? Hey, can okay, I ask so, a quick, Carrie, can I ask you a quick question? Oh, Let's say absolutely. it is, it is a little bit deep. It's still not, you know, right main stem or anything, but what, what is that going to do, uh, with the ventilator that, um, how is that going to affect the ventilation? Well, if it, you know, it, it depends. It could be deep enough to where you're not getting, um, equal tidal volume to each lung. So it can affect your ventilation and oxygenation. It can make a huge difference, really, okay. if it's, if it's a little too deep and especially the smaller the patient, the more that's going to be emphasized, the more difference you might see just because, you know, smaller anatomy right? and less room. All right. I like it. Thank you. All right. Moving on. So So moving on. Cool. uh, So Holly, I think you asked about uh, ventilator modes. Is that correct? I did. But if you have a process that you you go through every time, take us through it. I'm interested. No, that's good. Well, so my process is, number one, always check the ET tube in depth, listen to your patient. And then number two, when they're on the vent, um, you need to find out why they were intubated. What's the disease process? Were they intubated because of the respiratory issue, respiratory failure? Are they intubated just for airway control? Are they intubated for pain control? So you have to kind of think what's the disease process or the reason why they were intubated. And that'll give you a good idea of what you can expect um, for ventilation and oxygenation. Because if this, if your patient is intubated for non-respiratory reasons, they should be very easy to ventilate. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're intubated for seizures, intubated for um, a head injury, 
meaning no lung injury, then those patients I would expect to be very easy to ventilate with low oxygen needs. That's true. So other, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so it kind of gives you an idea that you shouldn't need a lot of big settings for those kind of patients. So for patients that are intubated due to um, respiratory issues, such as ARDS or pneumonia, um, those are the patients where I would think, okay, this is going to be a lot tougher. Um, I'm going to have ventilation, oxygenation issues, and what can I do to fix that? That's when you're really using it as treatment as opposed to a tool. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then the next thing I think of is this a ventilation issue. Is this an oxygenation issue or is it a little of both? And then you can start your process from there. So um, if it's a ventilation issue, um, a good thing to remember is uh, ventilation is always fixed directly with alterations in your tidal volume and or your respiratory rate. If it's an oxygenation issue, uh, you can fix that with your FiO2, which is very easy, and your PEEP. So those are directly proportional to your oxygenation. Okay, excellent. Carrie, do you have a, a set, uh, your typical adult patient that's going to be innovated, do you have a, a go-to PEEP setting? I've heard some different numbers there. I'm curious what yours are, if you have one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, all, of, all patients, pediatrics to adults, actually infant to adult, even our neonates, mm-hmm. they always get a minimum uh, PEEP of five, always. Okay. Always, always. That helps dent open the lungs because um, what we want to do is prevent that cyclical opening and closing. So that helps dent the lungs open um, and makes it easier for the patient to oxygenate. Mm-hmm. How, so minimum of PEEP, PEEP of five. It, like if, if you have a patient who's innovated for a significant amount of time, is PEEP always applied or is it something that they are going to they're going to mess with? Always applied. Okay. Yeah, good question. Always applied. And again, a minimum of five. Now, if you have an obese patient, um, I suggest a minimum of 10 just because uh, the pressure of the ch- or the weight of the chest, that helps that PEEP of 10 opposes that weight on the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it helps keep those lungs open. So, so us just sitting here in this room, we have a PEEP of five naturally. Right. So if you've intubated your patient, you still want to give them some PEEP because right. I got PEEP, you got PEEP. Everybody's got PEEP. We all have PEEP. PEEP. Exactly. <laughs> nice. We all have PEEP. Exactly. we got to keep the PEEP going. Yes. So what about the uh, obstructive patient, the COPD asthma patient who already is has a lot of their own auto PEEP? Or what, what is your thought on that? Still five of PEEP? Yeah, that's a good question. There's been a lot of controversy in the literature about that, but I think the latest studies have shown that a PEEP of five it will not be detrimental to that patient. Most of these patients that are intubated due to COPD or asthma, they are very well sedated, um, if not paralyzed. So they're not triggering the vent. Um, and that will create if they're not triggering or fighting the vent, that will decrease any incidence of auto PEEP. So I think a PEEP of five is absolutely safe, even for COPD and asthma patients. Okay. Good to know. All right. So moving on. Moving on. So uh, we can go to tidal volumes. 
So um, always, always, always tidal volume, six to eight mils per kilo, ideal body weight. Ideal body weight is the, is the, um, is what I want to emphasize on that. Not their normal weight, but ideal body weight. So you're saying if I weigh 400 pounds, my lungs didn't magically get bigger? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I wish I could be my ideal body weight, but, um, Have you seen that chart? Holy cow. If you want to feel bad about yourself, look at the ideal body weight chart. I'm pulling it up right now. (laughs) I'm trying to find a good one. And what country is this ideal? Yeah. Not America. That's for sure. (laughs) Right. So Carrie, six mils per kilo is your, is your uh, target. What if we go down to like four mils per kilo? Well, you can do that. The only time I would suggest that is with an ARDS patient. And the reason for that is um, because we really want to diminish. I talked about that cyclic opening and closing of the lungs. With ARDS, we want small, small tidal volumes to decrease that opening and closing. And that's why we need higher respiratory rates to maintain that minute volume. So what about if, uh, and you may cover this later, but let's say we have a lung injury patient and the P-plats are are significantly high and we we start tailoring down the, the, the tidal volume. Can we go to four, even though they're not ours patients or should we put them on pressure? Am I getting way ahead of us? I think we're getting way ahead of myself. All these questions. So, answer. I like the question though. I Thank think, you. yeah, yeah, no, it's a good, actually it's a really good question. Um, if it's not an ARDS patient, um, it is not recommended to go below the six mils per kilo ideal body weight because that can create lung injury as well. So remember, ARDS patients have to have bilateral infiltrates, not cardiac um, in origin. Um, and if it's not an ARDS patient, say it's just a pneumonia where you just have injury on the, you know, one, one lung, um, you can actually injure the lung if you don't give enough volume. Oh. So the the lower um, lung volumes of uh, four to five mils per kilo ideal body weight is only recommended for ARDS. That's a, actually a really good question. Okay. So what is the normal minute volume for adults? Anybody know? Six, 60, six sixty cc's per kilogram per minute. That's for you and I right now, right? Yeah, but if we're intubated. Oh, one twenty. <laughs> Are we recording right yeah, now? Yeah, right. we are. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see it's my that, fist bump right there? I yes, it's, that awkward, <laughs> it's that awkward silence. Right. Good. So, yeah, so it's, it's basically six to eight liters per minute. Right. Right. So Which my 120 yeah. was correct, right? Yeah. Well, good, sort of. I, oh, yeah. Wow. I guess it, I guess it depends <laughs> on what your kilo is, right? Right. So 120 yeah. per kilo per minute. Okay. And that's, yeah, right, correct. Yeah, for intubated patients, good. Um, so I think that's really good to remember. So you have to remember what the normal respiratory rates are for each, you know, for an adult and for peds, which peds can vary quite a lot, right, because mm-hmm. there's such a huge age, age range with those. Um, so minute volume is tidal volume times respiratory rate. And um, it the ventilator is great because it does a running actual Calculation for you. Thank you. Calculation for you on the vent. So it'll always show you your updated minute volume. And that includes if the patient is spontaneously breathing over the set respiratory rate as well. And so the 120 
or the the six to eight that you talked about, that takes up that makes up for uh, a dead space, right? Your anatomical and your mechanical dead space. In That's adults, why it's increased, probably, right? Probably, but yes, it does. Okay. It does. But you can have so the so one thing with between tidal volume and respiratory rate. Um, with respiratory rate, there's dead space associated with every breath, right? Because there's, there's dead space, like the part that doesn't, um, participate in gas exchange, like our upper airway. Um, the part where the ventilator from the T to the ET tube, that does not participate in gas exchange. So every breath, you'll have a little bit of dead space. Now with tidal volume, you'll, there's no dead space. Um, associated with tidal volumes. So one thing to consider when you're going up on your respiratory rate, um, you'll always have a little bit of dead space with that respiratory rate, even as you go up. If that makes sense. It does. So, so your tidal volume is breathe in, breathe out. That's your tidal volume, right? Right. right. Minute volume so is think- the amount of volume you're breathing in and out over a minute. Right. Right. So with tidal volume, you can sometimes, if you stay within the six to eight mils per kilo, you can get a more effective clearance of CO2 um, if you titrate that versus a respiratory rate. So you you would prefer to get that minute volume via the tidal volume as opposed to respiratory rate? Is that what you're saying, to get clearance? Yeah, I titrate the tidal volume. If I'm trying to decrease my CO2, I try to titrate my tidal volume first to an acceptable level, keep it between six and eight. And then if I can't titrate it up anymore, say I'm maxed out at eight mils per kilo, then I'll titrate my respiratory rate. Awesome. So let's say you've got a patient that you, you're trying to change the CO2 and um, you're titrating your Tidal volume first. How long are you waiting between titrations? I mean, are you waiting two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes till you see a change? Usually about, yeah, usually about five minutes. Usually you can be an entire transport for us. Right, exactly. Totally. Uh, So be patient is what you're saying. Titrate one thing at a time and be patient. Yeah, and that is a really good point is to titrate one thing at a time because if you change your tidal volume and your respiratory rate at the same time, you're not really sure what works. Right. And there is no right or wrong. You can absolutely titrate a respiratory rate first if you don't want to titrate the volume. Just understand if you're not able to meet your CO2 goal, um, it could be the dead space issue as you're increasing your respiratory rate um, and then think about increasing your tidal volume if if the rate doesn't work for you right away. So can I get back to dead space real quick? So anatomical sure. dead space is like the trachea, the bronchioles, anywhere in the body where there's no gas exchange. Is that correct? That is correct. And the mechanical is the ET tube, the the vent circuit, the, uh, the HME, all that kind of stuff. That's what mechanical dead space is. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the HME because that can be – a lot of dead space. Dan um, is so excited that he's getting all these right. He's so right excited, yeah. right? He's loving this, especially for pediatrics. If their right. tidal volume sixty, half of that could at, be mechanical dead space. So you're only ventilating them at thirty. Absolutely. The smaller the patient, the more that HME dead space will affect that patient. 
So the smaller the tidal volume, even if you have an adult patient, so you have a normal-sized adult patient that say it's ours, so you're ventilating at very, very low tidal volumes, let's say four mils per kilo, that HME could make all the difference in the world, um, and you may not be able to ventilate them due to that dead space. So what do you do? Increase the tidal volume. Increase tidal volume? Increase the tidal volume, yes. So what you're looking for, what you want to look at is your exhale tidal volume number. So you can increase your tidal volume. You might be over 8 mils per kilo, but as long as your exhaled tidal volume stays between 6 and 8, you are good. So when you are you saying, so are you talking just kids right now or are you talking everyone? Everyone. Okay. And so to get that exhaled tidal volume, they need to be in pressure mode, right? On uh, Either one. You can be in pressure or in volume. So you're talking about the, the calculation that's at the top all the time as opposed to the exhale tidal volume? Mm-hmm. The VTE? Yeah, VTE. That's there all the time? Oh, yeah, oh, it's okay. there all the time. Yeah, you, you have to wait for it because it, yeah, it scrolls it scroll through, through for you. Oh, it does. Okay. So, yeah, it scrolls through maybe about seven or eight different parameters. But it does, yeah, it is there every time. So let's recap. And that's something, that, oh. it's something that's nice because when it does scroll through, you can hit the select button, um, and then it'll hold that value up there. So if that's all you want to look at, you can keep it up there. Wow. So you can just see the exhale tidal volume. Okay. So when it scrolls through, hit select, it should stop. And then you can see your exhale tidal, tidal volumes um, all the time. Okay. Got cool. it. Because really what you want to know is what you put in should be pretty much what you get out. Right. If you're in volume control, what you put in should be what what comes out. Okay. So what if you put in 450 and you're getting out 500? What's going on? Uh, Sometimes that could just be from patient effort, Um, especially if they are triggering the vent. Um, They it could just be their own um, support that's added to that. Usually it's about the same or maybe 50 ml less is pretty normal. But if it's, if it's over what you're giving them, uh, usually it's because they're participating. Okay. And sometimes if they are, if you do have um, an exopide volume that's a lot higher, sometimes that can be a signal that they need a higher uh, tidal volume to make them more comfortable. So you also have to look at how they're tolerating the settings. Yeah, and that can also cause barotrauma too, right? Like if you're not giving your patient enough support and they are working against the vent, you're, you're creating some barotrauma there as well. Absolutely. That asynchrony can be very injurious to them because if they're trying really hard to take a breath and the ventilator isn't giving it to them at the right time, uh, yeah, that can create a lot of barotrauma for sure. And fixing that, we either need to give them more volume or pressure – or pain and sedation. Pain and sedation. <laughs> well, we yeah, talk, I think we'll we talk a lot about that today because I feel like um, we we could be better at sedating and using pain management for our intubated patients. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, they deserve. I mean, if that were me, I would want the All whole bag, yeah. right? Yes. I mean, I don't want to remember that. I yeah, no. right. They deserve to be very comfortable and not remember that incident for sure. Well, let's recap uh, what you were reason- saying about um, coming into the room. You're going to find tube size and depth, 
You're going to figure out why they got intubated. And from there, we're figuring out what the settings are on the vent. Right. Figure it out and then see how they're doing mm-hmm. on their vent, right? Because I know when I do it, it, something always goes wrong, right? There's, there's, my numbers were great. And then I put them on our vent and then it's like, oh, geez, this is horrible. Really right. And it's, it's good to look at what they're on. If they're on a vent, um, you know, before you get there, you know, I'm a big fan of if it's not broken, don't fix it. Right. Right. You know, I will look and see what they have. Number one thing I'll look at is, is that tidal volume within six to eight mils per kilo ideal body weight? You know, cause that's, we have to keep that because our number one, number one goal is to do no harm, right? Right. The goal of mechanical ventilation is to not further injure the lungs. Okay. Right. Cause once we introduce that tube and put positive pressure down there, um, it just sets the lungs up for more injury. So our goal really is to prevent further injury. Mm-hmm. So I will make sure the tidal volume is within the six to eight mils per kilo. Um, I'll look at the respiratory rate to see if it makes sense with the disease process. If this is a patient that uh, has a metabolic acidosis, say has a severe lactic acidosis from sepsis, uh, this is a patient where I'd automatically think they need a higher than normal respiratory rate, right, to make up for that acidosis. Right. Um, that doesn't mean you have to set the rate to 30, um, but you do need to set it higher than normal. So I would say you could start like in the mid-20s, uh, 24 to 26, and then when you get time, if you get time to look at any, you know, we usually don't get a lot of ABGs, but if you can look, look at a chem panel and look at their CO2, that can give you a good idea of where their acidosis is. Right. It's good. You know, the history, you know, are they DKA? Did they overdose on aspirin? You know, what? what? Exactly. Exactly. And if it is a DKA or aspirin overdose, those are the patients that that really need the, you know, double your normal minute ventilation, right? Because if you come across a patient that's intubated for DKA or aspirin overdose and you put them on normal vent settings, like a rate of 12, a rate of 16, that could kill the patient, right? Because all that's going to do is decrease that pH even further, and they're going to get more acidotic. So, yeah, super important to know that um, and to maintain that minute ventilation for sure. Yeah, because naturally their body's trying to blow off that CO2, which is the acid. And if you're retaining all that acid, now their pH just went from 7.2 to 6.9. Yeah. And it can happen exactly. pretty quickly. And so it's important, I think, in those cases – to maybe ask what was their respiratory rate before they were intubated. Right. Or like Carrie said, get the chem panel and calculate a winter's formula and maybe try to figure out where that CO2, it might, the CO2 might need to be 20 or 24. Right. Or if you're doing the intubation, take, do a mental yeah. note of what. Yeah. Why those are, are really tricky patients. So. I'm yeah, glad you brought are. that up, Carrie. Yeah, those are tricky patients. And it is really good to know what they were breathing before, um, what the history is. Um, and if I look at the chem panel, I, I love the chem panel because the CO2, if the CO2 is 15, I know, okay, higher respiratory rate. That's mm-hmm. all I clue in on, right? It's um, so easy to chase the numbers, though, and want to make it look pretty. But these specific patients, we, we really need to be outside of our comfort zone. So you're Yeah, what it comes down thing. to, yeah, what, what it comes thing. down to is these, yeah, is these acidotic patients, metabolic acidosis, need high rates, Right to prevent further worsening of their pH status. 
um, obstructive patients need low rates, right, to prevent auto peak okay. um, and give give enough time for for escalation. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd like to get in that in a little bit uh, the ID and all that stuff. First, can we go over just a quick rundown difference between AC and SIMV, and when you would use either one of those? Absolutely. So AC is assist control. Um, it's not a true control mode, um, but what it does is it will give the patient um, the set volume or the set pressure, whichever one you want to use. It's available in pressure and volume. Um, if you have an assist control set of uh, a rate of 16, it'll give that patient 16 breaths uh, for the minute. If the patient breathes spontaneously in that minute, it will give that same amount of volume or pressure when they uh, when they trigger the vent. If that makes sense. Yes. Yep. So if they, so that's where you stack the breaths. Is that correct? Yeah, you can, especially if you have a patient that has a strong respiratory drive on top of their set ventilator rate they can absolutely start stacking breaths because each time they trigger, they'll get that set volume or that set pressure every single time. Whereas in SIMV, which stands for synchronous intermittent mandatory ventilation. So the synchronous means that when the patient triggers the vent, they get a breath. The mandatory part of that means that they get the minimum that you set so if you set an SIMV of 16, they'll get a minimum of 16 breaths. But the difference is when they take a breath or when they trigger the vent, it is all, uh, they decide what the volume is, what the pressure is, when the, the breath cycles off, it's all on them. So the ventilator doesn't help them besides the pressure support that's given. And when you're using SIMV, always give them pressure support, which it, all, it automatically oh, dials it in. So it's nice for us, it, but it does. The vent, the vent is very smart and it automatically lights up. Um, so it clues us into, Hey, you know, make sure you set this. And it does, I think it defaults to a pretty um, appropriate pressure support. Yeah. And remember that that pressure support is additive to the set peak level. So if you have a pressure support dialed in of 10, and a set peep of five, your actual pressure support is 15. It took me forever to figure that out. It's confusing. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of confusing. But, yeah, same with any time you set um, a pressure. Um, if you're in pressure control, that's additive to the peep as well. So what would you but use? Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was just going to say... Um, AC versus SIMV, if your patient is chemically paralyzed or sedated to where they're not triggering the vent, there is no difference in those modes. Absolutely no difference. The only difference between AC and SIMV is if the patient is breathing over the set rate. So when would you use one over the other? Um, I use assist control if they're not breathing over the set rate or they're so sedated or paralyzed or if they're adequately sedated and paralyzed, I'll just use AC. 
Um, I'll use SIMB if they have a strong respiratory rate over the set rate. Uh, another reason why I would use AC over SIMB, I think it's more comfortable for the patient. Um, I have heard from intubated patients before <laughs> that because AC is more, it's, it's more of a support, you get more support from that, uh, from that mode. So the patients don't have to work as hard. If you are in SIMB with pressure support, um, the pressure support does help overcome ET tube resistance on those supported breaths, but the patient still has to work a little bit harder. So if I see my patient looking like they're pulling, um, that they're not comfortable, I might go to AC just for the more, just for more support. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. So Carrie, would you mind if we go through a, just a really quick scenario with you? And then we can put the patient on volume mode, and then we'll put that exact same patient on pressure mode so we can see what the difference is between those two. Absolutely. Do you prefer, do you have a preference, volume or pressure? I mean, probably you for know, pediatrics, but um, just let's, let's say normal old adult patient. You know, I always start in volume, typically, unless it is a small pediatric patient, maybe less than 10 kilos, I'll go straight to pressure. Uh Um, But but I start in volume and then see what kind of exhale tighter volumes I'm getting. I'll see what my P-plats are. If I can keep it under my P-plats under 30 and get good exhale tighter volumes um, with adequate stats, I'll stay in volume. But if I have any lung issues where it's more difficult to ventilate or oxygenate, I will go right to pressure. Okay. Well, let's do something so super usually, easy. Let's do, um, what, what's our main patient? What's the patient you take the most besides ARDS? Cause that's not easy. <laughs> um, how about just a regular old trauma patient? Okay. Let's say a uh, 30 yeah, year old motorcycle crash, head injury. So we're intubating for, for the head injury yep. for ultra delicy. Okay. So, um, I would put this patient on assist control because I we are going to be giving this, if the patient can tolerate, um, we're going to make him very comfortable with pain and sedation. I would do assist control. Um, I would start at a tidal volume of about 7 mils per kilo. Look at my exhale tidal volume. Um, assess his peak inspiratory pressures and his plats and make sure they stay under 30. If they're over 30, then I would decrease my volume further. Um, and then I would set my respiratory rate to about 14 to 16 and look at my entitled CO2. How old is this patient? Perfect. Let's say 30 years old. 30. Okay. So this is a patient I would not suspect to have any lung injury, right? Right. So again, I would suspect I should have low P-plat. P- low oxygen needs, although I think I would put them on 100% because per ATLS guidelines, any fresh trauma patient, they need 100% because of any internal bleeding. So, so but I would start with a PIPA 5. So I do AC, volume control, tidal volume of 7 per kilo, ideal body weight. I just quickly, you know, estimate how tall he is and then throw something on there. It does not have to be exact as long as you're in the ballpark. Um, look at his P-plat. Keep a five, 100%. Perfect. So let's go through that real quick. So I'm looking at, the, when you're looking at your vent, you get the pips, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, up at the top. Yeah. Which is the amount of pressure that's exerted on the entire system. 
everything, the lungs, the trachea, everything, right? Yeah, well, it's actually, so, yeah, so PIP is directly proportional to the resistance in the lungs. And it's the resistance in the upper airway. Yes. So the large airways and up, right? So large airways, ET tube. Um, So when you think of PIP, always think resistance. So the patient could be biting the tube, coughing against the tube. They'll have high PIPs if it's a too small of an ET tube as well, mm-hmm. uh, as well as bronchoconstriction, secretions, anything, blood, any that in the airway. And the PPLAT, you're measuring the pressure exerted on the, in a very simple way, the pressure exerted on the alveoli, so the lower airway. Absolutely, where the magic happens, right? Mm-hmm. So that PPLAT is directly proportional to compliance. So PIP equals resistance, PPLAT equals compliance. So, and that's really the number that matters. Mm-hmm. You can have high PIP. Um, you want to make sure you, you know why your patient has the high PIPs and try to fix that. But that's not what is going to injure the lungs. What will injure the lungs is if we don't keep the PPLAT 30 or less, or we can go up to 35 or less in obese patients just because the weight of the chest. Right. Okay. So, Carrie, question for you. When you're looking at your pressures and you've got a high PIP and a normal P plat and you have like a, a difference between those two. That's one of those things that indicates increased airway resistance, correct? Yeah, very good point. Uh, that's a really good thing to look at because then you can kind of decide where the issue is. Right. Yeah, if you have a PIP of, of 40 and a P plat of 18, that directly tells me my problem is upper airway. Mm-hmm. So, so it could be a kinked uh, tube. It could be uh, asthma. Maybe you need to give a nub. Absolutely. It could be yeah, a lot of different or things. Secretion. Yeah, or maybe yeah. the patient needs, yeah, needs to be suctioned or is biting on the ET tube. So it, it really clues you into where the problem is. That's cool. Good question, Steve. Thanks. The peanut gallery is showing up I today. <laughs> So, I love it. And then, you know, conversely, if you have a high PIP, say, of 40 and a PPLAT 35, then, you know, the problem is compliance, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's when you think, oh, then you've got fluid down there. So that could be pulmonary edema. This could be an ARDS patient. Um, it could be from, you know, direct chest trauma, if, you know, for our patient here, if you had any chest trauma. And measuring a good PPLAT, your patient needs to not be breathing. They need to be very well sedated, correct? Good question. You cannot get a um, an adequate PPLAT unless the patient is not triggering the vent. So they cannot have any spontaneous respiration. Yes, correct. If y'all are out there measuring your PPLAT and it's higher than your PIP, you got a problem. You, de- <laughs> you did it wrong. Done <laughs> it can't up. happen. <laughs> it gets impossible. So- Physiologically, it can't happen. So let's say, let's just run through Carrie's algorithm. You have a patient who has high, high plats, high P plats. I know we've gone through this before, but I just want you to say it again. What is your algorithm of, of getting that down? What do you do first? So the number one thing I do is decrease my tidal volume. Okay. But not below six. Not below six unless it's ours. Okay. All right. So if you, it, you've decreased it. It's still up there. What do you do? Uh, that's when I'm going to accept higher CO2s. 
Okay. Because really, if it's not ours and we decrease it below six, all we're going to do is further um, have a further incidence for lung injury, right? So that's why we need to keep it between six and eight mils per kilo ideal body weight. So that's, um, yeah, then you're just going to have to accept higher CO2s if that's the case. Right. So keep your tidal volume within normal range and stop chasing the number. Right. And then, and Dan, I think this is the kind of patient, if I couldn't, if I went down to six mils per kilo, um, I would try pressure ventilation if I was in volume and see if I could get, um, see if I could get that P-plat lower so I could get hopefully adequate tidal volumes at a lower P-plat. Perfect. Okay. That's all I need to know. So let's talk about pressure. Let's say we have the same healthy lung patient and you decide to put them on pressure instead of volume. What does that look like? Yeah, that's good. Uh, one thing that's nice, if you start out in volume and you do get a P-plat, um, that's a really good place to start with your pressure control ventilation. So if this trauma patient that we had, I put him in volume, let's say he had a tidal volume of 450, um, and I did a P-plat, and his P-plat was 18. That's where I would start if I were to go to pressure ventilation. All right. So now take if us I, through your setup. If, okay. Then I would start to, uh, again, pressure ventilation is um, it additive to the set peak level. So I would set my peak inspiratory pressure for 13 with a peak of five for a total pressure level, level of 18. Mm-hmm. So then the number one thing I want to check, I'm going to look at them if I can assess chest size, my entitled CO2, but I want to look at my exhale tidal volumes to make sure those stay between six and eight mils per kilo. If they're too low, I'm going to up my pressure. And how high can I go? What do you mean by that? What button do you push to increase your pressure? Well, you're going to increase your peak inspiratory pressure. Awesome. So I was at 13 before, so maybe I'd go up to 15. So again, because it's additive to my set peak, which is five, now I'm at, at a pressure of 20. So quick question, uh, just for my head. Uh, so you've gone up to, you went up to 18, so you said? 15. 15. Yeah, from and then 13. And you have a five. But let's say you have to increase the, the peep as well. Let's say they're not oxygenating well. Mm-hmm. You want to increase that to eight. So now are you, you're at okay. 23, just so I have this. That is, that is correct? That's correct. He, I'm just going to let you all, all know. <laughs> he did it without a calculator. Thank you so much. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. So, all right, so back to pressure. So we just increased our um, pressure. So interestingly, I don't know why. that Carrie, you told me this. When your patient is in volume mode, you're looking at the pressures. When they're in pressure mode, you have to look at the volumes. And Correct. that was like this huge light bulb came on in my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's I how like we that. do it. So what you're saying is you, you put in your pressure, and now you're looking at your exhaled tidal volume to see where you're at. If it's, is it too low or is it too high? So and it, Exactly, because that's the variable, right? When we, you know, give somebody a certain pressure, um, that's the only thing we have to, to monitor. Um, that's the variable we have to monitor to see if that's enough pressure. And if it's too low, you increase your pressure. If it's too high, you decrease your pressure. So you can go either way with that. And by increasing your pressure, and I just have to say this again because people ask me this question a lot, you're increasing your PIP. 
That's the number that you're looking for. That is exactly right. Um, you're increasing your peak inspiratory pressure because that is what you set in pressure control. Now, let's say I've increased your- my pressure. You know, we started out at eight. Is that what we said? Who, me? I'm just asking oh. Carrie, like, what did we start out with on this scenario? I, I thought we started out at 18. 18. So you, 18 total. 18, 18 total, total. Okay. right? Right. Um, so we went up by two on our PIP, and then maybe we went up another two on our PIP. How far away do you want to get from your PEEP with your PIP? Does that make sense? What's makes, that gradient there? Makes a lot of sense. You want to stay at least five to six um, above your PEEP. Otherwise, um, you won't provide any ventilation. Otherwise, it's you're just like close with non <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you have to have a difference of at least five to six. Um, otherwise, you're not going to provide any ventilation. Um, and as far as increasing your PIP, um, that's just why pressure is such a cool mode because it's very protective. Um, we can increase our peak inspiratory pressure to 30 or 35 for obese patients. And that is really our limit because we can't check a P-plat in pressure control in on the Ravel or the LTD, um, that is essentially our P-plat. Mm-hmm. So in pressure control, our PIP equals our P-plat. Okay, pressure There's control. so much you're saying, and I'm just, okay, hang on. Yeah, and I'm going back <laughs> in my head you. looking at the... Yeah. <laughs> okay. It, no, this is great. So in pressure Only control, because... Say that one more time. Okay, so because we can't directly measure the P-plat in pressure control... We know that the P-plat can never be higher than the peak inspiratory pressure. So when we're in pressure, we know that our P-plat is whatever we set the pressure or lower. So that's why it's protected. So if we limit out at 30, we are still providing lung protective ventilation. If your PIP is at 30, you know your P-plat is less than 30. Right. Absolutely. Yes. That's correct. So Holly, you touched on the PIP-PIP differential and i want to know if that's a, a term does that even exist and if it doesn't we should make one we up. should make one up yes it does exist and Dang. what it's called is driving it's called driving pressure driving so in pressure, pressure con- yeah in pressure control the difference between the pip and the peep is the driving pressure in volume control the difference between the p plat and the peep is the driving pressure so well quick question before you yeah, totally lose me <laughs> so driving pressure what if you could paint a picture for me with just stick figures, what basically it's would that look like? how much peep is in your alveoli minus how much pressure. Yeah, it's just a difference between the um, it's just a difference between the the pressure and the peep. That's all, the inspiratory pressure and the peep. So difference between inspiratory pressure and expiratory pressure. Okay. So. And what is the number less than 13 now? Or is 13 to 15? Actually, there's studies um, that there's decreased mortality, decreased ventilator-induced lung injury if you keep that number below 14. It's kind of a weird number. Um, the driving pressure. Yeah, the driving pressure. And again, in pressure control mode, that would equal your set peak inspiratory pressure minus your PEEP. Or in volume control, that would that would equal your P-plat, right? Because that's the number that really matters, minus your PEEP. And Holly, you said that- 13 to 14? 
That's, that's she's less than 14. Less than 14 is, is good. So basically you're, you're trying to figure out the relationship between how much pressure you're exerting on the alveoli and how much peep you have. Right. And if that number right. is higher, then you need to change more. And so I think what it does is it changes the relationship of what you're thinking of is, well, my peep can actually go quite a bit higher and our driving pressure is still below 14. That's exactly right. Because how many times have we had patients on a hundred percent and a peep of five? Right. Oh, Honestly, yeah. that really shouldn't ever happen because either you need to come down on your FiO2 or you need to go up on your peak. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Carrie, and maybe this isn't true, but for us in this transport environment, driving pressure might not be on the top of our list to watch for. Because I know that in the ICU with these ARDS patients or people that are really sick, driving pressure is becoming the thing to look at because you can have higher peeps. But um, like on the inner facilities. And higher we, P-plats. Shouldn't we be thinking about that, especially the longer transports? We could be. I just, um, Carrie, what's your opinion on that? Like, um, we're not respiratory therapists. We're not actually changing any sort of therapy in an hour or less. Um, Absolutely. I mean, these we're not going to fix these patients in our, you know, 30-minute transports. And that's really, you know, we, we just have to get them, you know, maintain them or, or try to get them a little better than they were. Um, but we're definitely not going to fix them. I think as many tools as we have, we need to just think about things that, you know, the ways we can provide these vent settings that are going to decrease any lung injury. So I think it's good to think about, you know, the driving pressure. Um, I don't know. Do you guys think that's too much? I don't think so. I mean, it's part of our critical care toolbox, right? Even though like I might take note of the driving pressure, like, wow, it's, it's 14 or wow, it's only seven. So we can go way up yeah. on our peep or maybe we can go up more on our tidal volume. Um, right. Because the, the whole idea behind the driving pressure idea and to keep it lower, um, earlier I talked about that cyclical opening and closing, right? And so when you have a, when you keep that driving pressure lower, you don't open and close the lungs as much, right? It's just a softer, gentler, you know, it's not this huge open and close. Um, does that make sense? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> think no. about, yeah. am I, sorry. No. So think about PEEP as just the stent open, right? So right. it's going to open the, and it's going to close a specific right. amount. Like the doorstop. So if you, like the doorstop. Yeah, if you, right. But if you have flat, a PEEP at, sorry, go ahead. If you have a PEEP of five, and an inspiratory pressure of 35, right? That's a huge opening and closing, opening and closing, right? Correct. But if you have a peep of five and a peak inspiratory, peak inspiratory pressure of 20, that's a lot less opening and closing, right? Mm, so it's less injurious, to, less injurious to the lung. Okay. And so, that's so the that's relationship the that you're looking for in the driving pressure is how much they're moving out and in, I guess. Which is why you don't want a large... Right difference between the two of them. Right. Right. Got it. Yeah. Oh, Carrie. Right. Right. Which light bulb, which kind of, which kind of brings me back to that point where you have a patient on, um, and I see this a lot on a hundred percent and a peep of five, you know, something needs to give there. Right. If they really don't need a hundred percent, right. Then wean that down. Right. Right. Um, or increase that, if they really are having oxygenation problems. And when you're talking about this specific, like the PF ratio, um, what what numbers are we looking for? 
So PF ratio, um, so per ARDS, the latest ARDS uh, guidelines is under 300 is mild lung injury. Uh, 200 to 300, I believe, is moderate lung injury. And under 100 is severe. I know 300 is mild, 200 is moderate, and then 100 or under is severe. Gotcha. So the lower the number, the worse it is. So basically, you want to make sure your SpO2 and your PEEP are a little bit closer than 100% and 5 Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Those are the patients, you know, anytime you have a high PF ratio, you can walk in. And if my patient's on 100% and their SATs are 80, I know their PF is going to be And you can do that without, oh, there's a bleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you can think, you don't need a blood gas to figure that out, oh. right? You know, if their SATs are 80, you know that their PAO2 is not going to be good. So that's, automatically going to be a patient where I'm going to think I need more PEEP, right? To stent those lungs open more. Okay. So I PF ratio, <laughs> where was, what does that stand for? Well, she was talking about like when you walk in and, and the, the, the patient's on a hundred percent oxygen, right? but their stats are a hundred percent. Right. Why are we doing that? Why okay. are we doing this? Right. Okay. And their peeps at five, you know, why are we doing this part? We need to wean like, like Carrie always says, be a wiener. <laughs> Be a wiener. Yes. <laughs> Be a wiener. Not everybody needs a hundred percent FIO2, right? Or not, or SATs of a of hundred, right? We don't need that. We just need SATs of greater than 94. Uh, there's some patients that we tolerate less, um, or lower, uh, SATs. So like COPD patients, uh, like 88 to 92, those are just fine. But most patients do just fine with SATs of of 94 and higher. So Carrie, that's all good stuff. Um, now what about that obstructive patient? The patient that is just, their, their lungs are already full of air that can't get out. That's trapped in there. What would you change up for your ventilation strategy? So the number one thing, the number one thing about these obstructive patients is they need time to exhale. So that is all I'm thinking. I'm thinking low respiratory rate like possibly 10 or even lower, um, depending on how severe the obstruction is. And then Carrie, what are uh, you, what are you, what's your, do you have a go-to with your IE ratio? Yeah, I like to aim for at least one to four or one to five. So question uh, on that, I, I yeah. listened to a podcast the other day regarding this type of stuff and they were saying sometimes it's an inspiratory problem as well. And they might choose a one-to-one just so they have that slow inspiration, which matches their exhalation. What are your thoughts on that? Or is that even something that's doable? You know, I haven't, I haven't heard that. What you can do, because what a lot of these obstructive patients have is um, uh, a really strong air hunger. So they like a very quick eye time, which means, uh, a lot of flow at the beginning of the breath uh, because they can't get it out. Okay. So they really require increased flow. So what you can do is decrease the eye time, which is inversely proportional to the flow, which in turn will give them a higher flow rate, which hopefully will satisfy their air hunger needs. And so it's a quicker but, flow, a quicker eye exactly. time? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. 
Yeah, the lower the eye time, so if you went from one second to 0.8 seconds, that flow is going to be, be delivered quicker. Okay. What Does that damage the airways at all? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Well, there actually is an eye time button. Do tell. Yeah. And so uh, it usually defaults to, if you're in an adult mode, it'll default to one second. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that is inversely proportional to the flow rate. Um, if you're in volume control, that flow rate is always constant. So it's a square waveform. So it delivers that flow um, constantly over the set tidal volume that you have. If you're in pressure control, it's a decelerating waveform. So the eye time in pressure control determines how fast it's going to deliver the set pressure. And the flow is variable. So the patient can pull as much or as little flow as they need, which is why pressure control can be more comfortable for Mm -hmm. some patients because they can control the flow. Where in volume control, they don't. It is just a set flow dependent on what you set for your eye time. Okay, awesome. All right, so let's go to a scenario. Let's say you, uh, you're doing infertility and it's a 74-year-old COPD patient uh, was brought in, was given, you know, beta agonists, uh, all the good stuff. Um, steroids, uh, patient just starts to tire, so the doctor wants to intubate. Doctor intubates, uh, what settings would you want to see on that patient? Right, good. I, I think it's always important, you know, we never want to have to intubate these kind of patients, but sometimes they just, they fail because they can't keep up that high respiratory rate, right, uh, because of their distress and, and they go with failure. But for these patients that get intubated, number one, keep them at a tidal volume, six to eight mils per kilo ideal body weight and a low respiratory rate. I start anywhere from 10 to 12, make sure I have enough time to exhale. Uh, keep a five, I don't go any higher than that. Usually, these patients are very easy to oxygenate. Um, it's just the ventilation part that you have to get, um, uh, just have to support them on. All right. So um, what if their, their end title is 76? Great. I don't have any problem with that. And these are patients where you do not want to get them down to normal CO2 levels. You don't want to get them into 35 to 45 range. Why? Because if this patient is chronic, which usually COPD is chronic, um, they don't live at that range, right? right? So it's very hard for them to, once they do try to wean off the vent, they won't be able to do it because you have blown their CO2 down so low um, and not in their normal range. So just the big thing that, that, I always suggest is to get the CO2 going in the right direction is to slowly lower it. I'm perfectly happy with CO2s in the 50s and even 60s, as long as I'm going the right way. And And we should not be chasing that number. Do not chase the number. The biggest thing is to always make sure you have enough time to exhale. That's the biggest thing. And it's interesting, even though you have lower rates, you will actually you can blow off more CO2 because you have more time to blow off the CO2 mm-hmm. versus increasing the respiratory rate. I think pe- some people walk in, they might see a COPD patient that's just been intubated and they're entitled as 90. So the first thought is, oh, I need to increase my respiratory rate to blow off CO2, which is perfectly normal, perfectly normal 
for non-obstructive patients. But for obstructive patients, completely different, right? You need to lower that respiratory rate, provide much more time, double the time to exhale. So what does so your ID ratio look like on this type of patient? At least one to four, one to five, one to six. And these are patients that need a ton of sedation and pain meds, a ton, because they are not used to breathing this slow. They never breathe this slow. But in order to make sure that they don't trap more air, we have to ventilate them like that until they can get strong enough um, to wean off. Would you ever uh, pull the ET tube off and press in on the chest? Absolutely. If yeah, and that is a, a it's a great point. Anybody that is an obstructive patient, or anybody that you ventilate with high respiratory rate, so metabolic acidosis, those kind of patients, ARDS patients, um, if you suspect auto peep to the point where you're getting, where you suspect maybe attention, you have hypotension, tachycardia, um, high peak pressures high plateau pressures, um, the first thing you should do, pop that patient off the vent, press down on the chest, and just give them time to exhale. If it is auto-peep, if that's the culprit, your uh, vital signs will quickly improve. Your blood pressure will go up, heart rate will come down, stats will go up, and then the biggest, then you'll know that that was the culprit. Okay. That it was, it was just maybe the breath rate was too high. Um, so then when you put them back on the vent, you have to change the settings, right? Right. You either have to, number one, lower the rate or you can lower the volume too. Because uh, the less volume in the chest means less to exhale. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, a couple of things that uh, I think uh, we all have issues with is maybe troubleshooting the vent. What are some things that you see and what could we do uh, if, if, I don't know, just run through some scenarios on troubleshooting, like uh, tube dissolvement or maybe we have a low pressures. What, what kind of stuff would you look for for low, low airway pressures? Yeah, uh, so low airway pressures, 99.9% are, it's a leak somewhere in the system. So I start either at the patient or at the ventilator and then go through all of the tubing and just make sure that everything is connected, something isn't loose, um, and just start from one end to the other. Um, and then if everything looks good, everything's tight, connected, um, I think about the ET tube. Sometimes that uh, the cuff will lose volume, uh, especially while transporting. So you can check your cuff pressure. Another quick way to do it is if you're in volume, uh, look at your giving. Look if you're in volume control. Uh, look at the difference between your tidal volume and your exhale, exhale tidal volume. So if there's a large discrepancy, maybe you're losing a lot because the cuff has lost a lot of pressure. Maybe you're not deep enough. Would that be? You know, you're losing. Yeah, that could. Yeah, that could definitely uh, be an issue as well. Do you have a yeah. mnemonic that you go through? Um, I just go through the dope mnemonic, oh, right? Dope mnemonic. Like that. <laughs> yeah. And actually, actually, it's dope. It's plural. Oh, dope. Mm-hmm. It's plural. Yes. And that so S we have, is important. The S is very important, especially with this last patient. 
So de-displacement, which is always an issue for us, right? So, you know, take a quick look, make sure that ET tube is where it was when you left. Um, obstruction, uh, put something down the ET tube, make sure it's not secretions. That's one of the easiest things that's overlooked um, is just make sure that tube is patent. Uh, and then P, Panumo, right? So, again, <laughs> assess for high tips, high flats, um, high pressures on the vent, uh, you know, low fat, tension, um, physiology, all that kind of stuff. And then equipment. If you have any issues, if the vent isn't working right, take them off and bag them. A lot of times you can feel a lot with, um, you know, compliance resistance. Um, but if you can bag them, you should be able to put them on the vent obviously in that, unless there's something uh, wrong with the vent uh, or we can just blame it on the vent, right? That always works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And then the, yeah, the last one is S for stacked breath. That's the most important. So oh, these wow. are um, for our obstructive patients or anybody that we're ventilating with high respiratory rate. Um, so you just have to make sure there's enough time to exhale. Right. Um, so take the patient off. If their vital signs improve and staff improve after you take them off, that was probably the culprit was auto peak. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's awesome. That is great. Sometimes you can get those stacked breaths if, if there's a lot of vibration in the helicopter and it's that the tube is up against or the circuit's up against the metal part of the airframe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It'll trigger that's a breath. A, right. So make sure that you're, or if there's secretions inside the circuit, sometimes it'll trigger a breath with that vibration. So. Yeah. What can you do to, to mitigate that? Move it. That's <laughs> <laughs> too obvious. Increase your. Yes. Yes. Move it. Or you can increase your sensitivity. Right. Yeah. So um, the higher the number, the harder it is for the patient to trigger a breath. The lower the number, so at like two or one, uh, the easier it is for the patient to trigger a breath and the easier it is for the, the vent to auto cycle. Mm-hmm. So you can take that number up uh, one or two, which is measured in liters per minute because it's a flow rate that the patients have to trigger to get a breath. So if you increase that just a little bit, sometimes that's enough to um, for the vent to not be as sensitive to a lot of turbulence or vibration. But you just have to watch that you don't go too high because if it's too high, then if the patient is taking spontaneous breaths, it can be very hard for them to do that. But you'll, you can, it's easy to notice because they do not look comfortable. Would you ever, uh, if you have an issue, would you ever look inside the mouth and see, make sure you haven't dislodged the tube or make sure that everything's good down there? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think I'd look at my entitled CO2, which tells us a wealth of information. Um, if I had a, good waveform that's coming back to baseline, I think I would on it, it doesn't really show us if we're high or right main stem, but it does show us that we are in, in the proper place. In the right, yeah, in the right place, oh, right. Excellent. But you could do that, but just remember anytime you look inside the mouth, are you talking about like with the laryngoscope? Yeah, just to make sure like if you're in low pressures and you don't know if it's dislodged and it's, you know. Just as a rule out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After you maybe check your cuff pressure and rule that that was okay, um, you could do that, but just make sure you have adequate um, sedation, pain meds before you go in there. Possibly even you might need to paralyze just to decrease any adverse reactions from that, from laryngoscopy. 
Okay. Do you ever get alarm fatigue? <laughs> get alarm fatigue. Because I know I do, and I know that's horrible. Because every time that alarm goes off, we should be, we should be making yeah. sure everything's golden. Yeah, and I think the biggest culprit for that is the high pressure alarm, right? Because that always goes off. And I think, I think we all just press alarm silence and keep pressing alarm silence because it is annoying. Um, you just want it to go away, but really. You can press the alarm silence right away, but you really need to figure out why the high heat pressure alarm is going off, which most of the time it's probably lack of pain and sedation management. But also I think the most overlooked thing is suctioning. Um, mm-hmm. when a patient, when a patient's intubated and especially with the movement that we put this patient through for transport, that increases the propensity for more and more secretions. So it's a super easy fix. Um, it will do wonders for your ventilation and oxygenation if you don't have all those secretions down there. Right. Um, and it could be the big difference from your patient tolerating the transport for just a, a quick, simple suction. So again, if you have high peak pressures and low P plat, that means it's all upper airway. So think about suctioning. Carrie, that's a lot of great information. I know I learned a lot. Yeah, um, it's great stuff. Could you just kind of do a recap of what you really think is important, what we really should take home? Sure. Um, I, I think it's important for every ventilator patient um, that we always use lung protective settings, which is a tidal volume of 6 to 8 mils per kilo ideal body weight um, for respiratory rate, set it per disease process. Um, and... Peak levels, again, set that for disease process too. Again, uh, a minimum of five for everybody um, and a minimum of 10 if you are obese uh, just due to the chest, uh, the weight of the chest wall and titrate your FiO2 uh, per disease process. Um, again, obstructive patients, flow rate, everybody else, um, such as metabolic acidosis patients, um, your, your DKA, lactic acidosis, aspirin overdoses, um, make sure that you realize those patients have to maintain a higher respiratory rate to decrease um, the to decrease incidence of further acidosis. Awesome. Perfect. Of course, pain and sedation. Yes, pain and sedation. You know what I've been doing lately is um, setting my timer on my watch. You know, depending on what you're giving, if you're right. giving Ativan every 45 minutes or you're doing ketamine Q10 or whatever it is, um, that time goes by really, really fast, fast and suddenly you're like, oh no, I, I forgot to give more mm-hmm. pain and sedation. So I've been setting the alarm on my watch and sometimes when my alarm goes off, I've already forgotten why I set my alarm. <laughs> and so it's, you know, I think I'm really good at pain and sedation and I really want to be, but it's good to have those little subtle reminders that it's time now. Someone right. should be maybe keeping time of when you've given your last fentanyl or whatever so you're giving, whatever your cocktail is that you like to give. Right. Absolutely. You do not want to, to have your first time with that ventilator uh, with someone who's super critical, a dying baby, uh, because you're stressed out. You've lost all your thought process at that. So you have to drill. You have to keep up on it. It changes all the time. So this is, this is your responsibility as a care provider to, to keep up on this stuff. It is. Yeah, that's a good point. I think if you are not used to pressure control, which I, I don't think most of us are, I think most of us are used to volume. 
which is totally fine. But my suggestion is next time you have a very stable patient, intubated patient in volume control, put them in pressure control during the flight just to get used to switching between the two. Um, just so it'll increase your comfort level. Absolutely. That's a great, great point. Yes. Well, guys, this is a good one. This is yeah, awesome. there was a lot of info. I hope everybody, brain go nuts. Um, yeah. I hope everybody enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for just an awesome podcast. Uh, really enjoyed having you on. And I think I learned way more than the vent classes I've got at our department <laughs> have ever taught me. Carrie's and, awesome. uh, I feel like I'm going to have an, a lot of one-liners or questions to, to throw at our vent guys right. that are on our SME team. So, right. Uh, right on. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for your time and, um, your expertise. It's, it's awesome stuff. My pleasure. 